if you would, please open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in the middle of chapter 7, and that is verse 9. You know, throughout history, we've seen several periods of what we would call Great Awakening. And this would be when the public kind of turned their thoughts toward religion in some way or another. And these Great Awakenings have been spurred by a multitude of different things, different reasons. There's one beginning in the 1730s and another in the 1800s. But there will be a Great Awakening like has never been seen before in history. And it will dwarf these awakenings of past history. And the number of souls won for Christ during this yet future awakening will be so numerous that our text says no one man could count them. When someone asks me if I think that there will be another revival on the earth, my answer is an emphatic yes, there absolutely will be. We may or may not be around to see that revival, but there will be one like the world has never seen before. And of course, I'm speaking of the great ingathering of souls that will occur during this tribulation period. We looked at those 144,000 sealed servants of God last week, and we read that they would come from certain tribes of the Israelites. Those men and women will turn to Christ toward the beginning of the tribulation. And they'll be preserved by God through those seven years of tribulation. And this week, we're looking at a completely separate group of people who will come to a saving faith in Christ during the tribulation. And we're calling this great multitude the saved servants. Last week was the sealed servants. This week, we're seeing the saved servants. So let's read real quick through verses 9 through 17, and then we'll go back into it. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Starting back in verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. I want to reiterate that this is not those 144,000 that we looked at last week. They could be numbered, and they were numbered. This is a separate multitude that is innumerable. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, this great multitude is made up of every ethnos. That's the Greek for nation. Every ethnicity is represented in this group. That's incredible to think of. All tribes, peoples, and tongues. Tongues being every language or origin of speech represented in this great multitude. This is a diverse crowd from every possible walk of life. And they've known every oppression imaginable to man living through this time of tribulation. They're diverse in their experiences, but there's something that all of these people share in common. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. There's not one person in that crowd that has not been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is something they all share in common. And that's the reason that they're all at the throne to begin with. That's the only reason why they could come to the throne. Not one of them deserves to be there. Verse 14 says that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The righteousness of Christ has been imparted to this multitude based on their relationship to him. Sound familiar? It's the same way we're saved today. There's no difference. Jesus is still at the center of salvation for us today and for them during the tribulation. Their robes appear white to John, and white is representing righteousness. Not their own righteousness, but Christ's. With palm branches in their hands, Palm branches are a symbol of rejoicing or of victory. We see palm branches used during Christ's triumphal entry, and that event is recorded in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, in Mark 11, 1 through 11, in Luke 19, 28 through 40, and in John 12, 12 through 19. And I'll just note real quick that Luke doesn't mention the palm branches, but all three of the other authors do. The Israelites also used palm branches in their Feast of Tabernacles because they were celebrating the victory of their wilderness wanderings finally coming to an end. You can find that referenced in Leviticus 23.40. So these palm branches are representing victory. These men and women have finally come into glory. They are with the Lamb, and they are victorious. Clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With a loud voice, singular. We lose a little bit of the nuance in English, but voice is singular here. This multitude cried out with one singular voice. Now, does this mean that they were all speaking one language? Maybe. It certainly could mean that, but is there something else unifying about their voices? I think so. I think their hearts are all turned towards Christ. They are unified in this blessing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's just interesting to consider the singular nature of this voice. This diverse group from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue is united in their praise to God by whom they've received salvation. It's an innumerable company, but they're united in their voice. Salvation belongs to our God. And this is really saying salvation is to be ascribed to our God and him only. He is the source of their salvation who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. All the angels stood around the throne. Back in chapter 5, you'll remember John saying that he saw myriad and myriad of angels. That is, an inconceivably large number times an inconceivably large number. And he says times thousands upon thousands. That's a lot of angels. And here, John says that they are all standing around the throne, plus the elders and the four living creatures. So you got four of those living creatures. Okay, that's not too many. But the elders... You remember who the elders represent? It's the church. The church is standing around the throne with all of the angels, with these four living creatures. Heaven is going to be a crowded place. And we don't, I don't get many complaints that our church is too crowded, but some do. And some people have a problem with being in a large church. I've got nothing against large churches if they're preaching the word effectively and faithfully. But if you're not used to it here, you're going to have to get used to it there. So one way or another, these large crowds are going to be present. And I think the physics of heaven are going to sort all of this out for us. It won't feel like the crowding here. But there are going to be a lot of people, and a lot of created beings in heaven. You know, it really makes us think, too, about who we consider to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I guarantee you, 
this is going to be made up of more than just Calvary Chapel attendees. There's no way that Calvary Chapel is going to fill up multitudes and multitudes. I just began thinking about that this week, and it was kind of pressed into my heart. But we need to consider you know, who's really on our side. And I'm not saying give any more leeway than should be given. You know, there are lines that we can't cross. And if you do cross them, I wouldn't consider you a Christian. But within those lines, we can have grace and we can still fellowship with people outside of our immediate circles. So that's kind of what I took from this here and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. All of these creatures, you know, people included, are worshiping God, saying, amen. This is kind of curious. You know, we usually wrap up praise or wrap up prayers with amen. But they start out this praise with amen, and they wrap it up with amen. So I just wanted to note that. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. How many ascriptions of praise do you see there? Blessing, glory, and wisdom, that's three. Thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. That's seven total ascriptions of praise. And that is a sort of culmination of the previous praises that we've seen in Revelation. You can go back and pick out some of the praises. You'll see that for the most part, they ascend in number. So towards the beginning, you'll have fewer ascriptions of praise listed out. And then here, this is kind of the climax of them all. This is seven ascriptions of praise. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. John actually wrote what he was hearing And he wrote down this ascription of praise using the definite article before each of these scriptions of praise. That would read like this. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom, the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the might be to our God forever and ever. So what does that all mean? It means that all of the blessing and glory and wisdom are being ascribed to God. All of it. The blessing, the glory, and the wisdom. All of the thanksgiving and honor and power and might are being ascribed to God. All of it. He is worthy of the blessing and the glory. Every bit of all of it. And he's worthy of all this forever and ever. Amen. Now, it's interesting to note, too, that the multitude that we see pictured here, not including the angels or the four living creatures, talk about salvation. So in verse 10, the great multitude cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
when the angels and the four living creatures chime in, there's nothing more said about salvation specifically, but they move to praising the attributes and the characteristics of God, his very nature. Because angels have not been redeemed. They have not experienced salvation like this great multitude has and like we have. Just interesting to note. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. So this scene in heaven is explained to John by one of the elders. If you remember, heavenly scenes will be explained by one of the elders and scenes on the earth will be explained by one of the angels. It's an interesting, consistent pattern that we see throughout the book. And this elder answers to, question, to the question in John's heart. You see, we don't see any dialogue from John before this. He's not actually asking a question, but he's thinking it. 13 says, then one of the elders answered. Answered to what? The question in John's heart He said to him, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? Don't you hate it when people answer your question with a question? So John comes back and says, well, I don't know, you tell me. And that's effectively what that means. He says, sir, you know. He's like, well, I don't really know, but you know, so why don't you tell me? And this is a bit instructive as to who this great multitude is not. Because I think if this great multitude were the church, I think that John would have recognized that. He might have even picked himself out in the crowd. If it was the saved from the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, I think he would have recognized that. But this great multitude that he sees comes where he was sitting in the first century, thereabouts, turn of the second, in the future. These tribulation saints would be gathered in in the future. Now, he says to him, John says to the elder, sir, you know. And so the rest of verses 14 through 17 are the elder's explanation as to who this group is. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. There's no doubt in my mind that this group is separate from the church but they are still believers that are saved out of this tribulation period. And the wording here leaves almost no room for any other interpretation. And this great innumerable multitude is largely the product of those 144,000 sealed Israelites. They were sealed through the tribulation. They've been evangelizing in the tribulation. And this group is a result 
of their faithful evangelistic efforts. If this multitude is made up of every ethnos, tribe, people, and language, these sealed servants must have taken the gospel to the entire inhabited world. These 144,000 sealed servants that we looked at last week, they are getting stuff done that we have not seen done in roughly 2,000 years. You know, in about the 30s AD, it's recorded in Acts, you see the word, the gospel message being preached across the entire inhabited world. And we haven't seen that again until we come to this point in history when the 144,000 go out and make that happen. Back in Acts, that evangelistic charge that took the gospel to the known world was led by Jewish converts to Christianity. During this time of Gentile leadership that we're living in now, we haven't seen that same thing happen. But in the tribulation, that same accomplishment will again be spearheaded by Jewish converts to Christianity. You better think about that for a moment. Who come out of the great tribulation. This word come is very instructive as far as lining this whole scene up chronologically. Come is in the present tense, not the past tense. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. This means that John is witnessing this scene while people are still being martyred and saved during the tribulation. And if this is the case, that puts this scene before the eternal scene of the New Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22. This chronology makes sense when we look at what is described in verse 15 coming up, who come out of, and I hope that we're getting familiar with the Greek word ek. Ek is translated as out of or from, and you can even expand it to say out from among or out of as a source. And this makes it pretty plain that the tribulation is where this group of believers come out of, okay? And the definite article is used, that's the, the definite article is used to describe the great tribulation here. Not a time of tribulation or a hardship, but the great tribulation. And in the Greek, it's even more emphatic than that. We see this phrase coined by Jesus himself in Matthew 24 to describe this period of time. He says, the great tribulation. And it's used here by this elder speaking to John. And more accurately, it would read, the ones who come out of the tribulation, the great one. Who come out of the tribulation, the great one. And it's worded like this in the Matthew passage and here in Revelation. There's no doubt as to what tribulation they're talking about. And washed their robes 
and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Even in the tribulation, it's still Jesus who saves. Amongst all that turmoil, these people are still coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen blood turn a garment white. It's always stained it. Maybe it's just my blood. Maybe it's faulty. But I've never seen blood turn a garment white. This word whiten, or to make white, is lucino. And it isn't just denoting color. It's broader than that. The word lucino comes from the word lucos, which means light or brilliant or shining white. So there's a luminescent property to these white robes. It's not the same kind of white that we can get our garments. My undershirt is fairly white, but it's not shining. It's not glaring into your eyes. Lucino. It's a brilliant, shining white. And this, because they were washed in the blood of Christ. That's incredible. And we know that this white represents righteousness. And certainly not their own righteousness, but what was imputed to them by Christ. Their own righteousness is like filthy rags. Let me ask you a question. If you were to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, would you want to show up to the feast in filthy rags? Of course not. You'd want a bright, shining garment, not filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. This multitude is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that is the only reason that they can come to Christ. Therefore, and this word therefore hammers home that point I just made. Therefore denotes causation. They are before the throne of God because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only reason that they can stand before the throne. and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. It says that they will serve him day and night in his temple. And there's a couple things here that we need to bring out. Revelation 22.5 tells us that there's no night in the eternal state of the new Jerusalem. And Revelation 21, 22 tells us that there's no temple there, but the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So there are these two things that don't match up with the picture we're given at the end of Revelation that talks about the eternal state of the new Jerusalem. Many commentators believe that the promises of these verses 14 through 17 will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom rather than in heaven. Revelation 20 verse 4 indicates a special resurrection for these tribulation martyrs 
and promises that they will live and reign during the kingdom age. However, I think that we also have good reason to apply these verses 14 through 17 to the blessed state of these saints after being killed for their faith and arriving in heaven. So I think that there is partial fulfillment during the tribulation when they ascend to heaven to be at the throne of God. And I think that there is partial fulfillment in the millennium when they reign with Christ. In verse 14, the word come in the present tense tips us off to the fact that when John sees this scene, apparently these saints were presently coming out of the tribulation. The elder didn't say these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, but these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. We also see a close tie in verse 15 between the throne of God and his temple. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They almost appear to be talking about the same area. It's like this elder is talking about the throne and the temple in the very same breath, literally and rhetorically in the same breath. And in the very next sentence, he's back to talking about the throne, and there's a reference to the tabernacle in there. It's possible that this refers to the throne room of God in heaven. We know that both the temple and the tabernacle were models of the throne room on earth. It could be what is happening here. It's hard to be dogmatic about this, and I could be right or wrong, but it makes sense to me that John is describing this scene as it appears in heaven during the tribulation. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And dwell is the word I want to zoom in on here. In some translations, this sentence will read, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Okay. Other translations read, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Okay. So there's somewhat of a range of translations here, but they are all translated from the Greek verb skinoo. And this can simply mean to dwell or to fix one's tabernacle, to have one's tabernacle, or to abide or live in a tabernacle or a tent. So the point this elder is trying to make is that God will be among his people, and he will cover them with his presence. He will shelter them with his very presence. And the result of this covering is expanded on in the next two verses, verses 16 and 17. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the result 
of them being sheltered by God's presence. And that's a beautiful scene that's painted here. The mentioning of these specific conditions infer that these saints had to live under these conditions while they were on the earth. These aren't random things that the elder chose to describe to John, but these are actual conditions that the tribulation saints had to deal with. And now they're being comforted and sheltered by God. Verse 16 says, They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. God will satisfy their hunger and thirst perpetually. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. God will be their shelter, and he will not allow the elements to harm them. This was something they bore up under during the tribulation. Verse 17, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. Did anybody else think of Psalm 23 when you read that? Psalm 23 is a beautiful passage, and it relates God to a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and I think because I was forced to memorize it as a kid. So, <laughs> I memorized it in the NIV, so reading it in the New King James throws me off a little bit. But that is one of the most beautiful pictures of God as our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, this could be talking about God wiping away every sorrow that they could ever possibly have. And this would include the understanding that some of their loved ones did not accept Christ during the time they had available. That would certainly cause great distress. And it's possible that this is included in wiping away every tear or sorrow. Now, there is a big question that comes up when we talk about people being saved through the tribulation, during the tribulation. The question is, how can men be saved if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world? And that's a valid question, but there's some assumptions that underlie the question that we need to dig out and talk about. We know that in order for a man to be saved, God must work in that man to draw them to himself. I've got a little graphic to throw up on the screen. 
drawing is one of the works of the Holy Spirit. John 6, 44 says that no man can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Without that work of drawing, a sinful man would not be even remotely interested in the things of God. Our nature is so depraved that we would not be able to turn ourselves toward God had it not been for the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit must work in that man's life to convict him of his sinful state and his need for a Savior. This is the work of conviction. John 16, 8. Again, Jesus speaking. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who at the time of his speaking was still yet to come. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit then awakens an interest in this hypothetical man for spiritual things. And this interest wasn't there before. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that is before the Spirit works in his life, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Then the Holy Spirit places a new heart in that man that is inclined toward him. This new heart has become a new creation now, and it wishes to know him, obey him, and walk in the newness of life that was promised. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that is the Holy Spirit regenerating an old creation, making him a completely new creation. So how can all of this occur If the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, how can a man be saved if the Holy Spirit's not here to draw, convict, and regenerate? To answer this question, we need to first uncover the assumptions that underlie the question. And we all operate under some assumptions, and that's just how our brains work. But sometimes that can be a hindrance to us. Sometimes we presuppose things that may or may not be true. So to see where this question comes from, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 8. And we'll give you a little bit of context with verse 3, and then we'll move in to what we're really talking about. Paul is writing this to the church in Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, 
so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Those two verses talking about the Antichrist mostly. Now moving into verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So we saw in this passage, it mentions the restrainer as someone who is active today in restraining the revealing of the lawless one, who is the Antichrist. The only one who is capable, even remotely capable, of restraining the work of Satan is God himself. God is the only omnipotent, that is, all-powerful being. And I believe that we are correct to say that this restrainer is the Holy Spirit. But to say that the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth entirely seems to be a logical leap. First, God is omnipresent, and his spirit is everywhere all at once. He cannot be removed in that capacity, but he can cease his ministry of restraint. You see, restraining evil is only one of the Holy Spirit's earthly ministries, and he does this primarily through the influence of believers. As believers, we are told that the Holy Spirit indwells us or lives in us. And Jesus tells believers that they are the salt of the world. That's from Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the world. Salt at that time was used widely as a preservative. Believers, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, act as a preservative on the earth restraining, if you will, acts of evil. Imagine an earth without the influence of the church. How bad would it get and how quickly would it get there? But what if believers were taken off the earth? We're here now and the Holy Spirit works through us to restrain evil. If believers were no longer on the earth, What would that look like? And I believe that this is what Paul is referring to in the second Thessalonians passage. The Holy Spirit is not removed altogether, but he is removed insofar as his influence on the world through the church is concerned. At this time, evil will be allowed to reign and the lawless one will be revealed. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to earth in a new capacity that hadn't been seen before. But before that, he had still been present on the earth. Even as far back as Genesis 1, verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
And the Spirit was still working to convict sinners and uniquely empower certain people all throughout the Old Testament. And it seems that during the tribulation, the Spirit will return to what I'll call his Old Testament ministry, which actually makes sense when you realize that God, during the tribulation, has turned his attention away from the Gentiles now and back onto the Jewish people. During the Old Testament, his focus was on the Jews. During this church age, his focus is on everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. And during the tribulation, he'll turn his focus back onto his people, the Jews. So the Holy Spirit will still be active in his ministry of convicting sinners and drawing them to God. But his mode of restraint has been taken to heaven. And that's how people still get saved during the tribulation. There's no problem with that. There's no inconsistency. The Spirit is still working in their lives to draw them to God. And I'd encourage you this week to consider what Joel 2, 28 through 32 has to do with all of this. That'll be a fruitful time of personal study for you. And we might even do a short breakdown of it before we get into chapter 8 next week. Um, but if you want a head start on that, also see Acts 2, 14 through 21. Peter references that passage in Joel. And again, that's Joel 2, 28 through 32. And Peter references that passage in Joel in Acts 2, 14 through 21. This has a lot to do with what we just talked about concerning the Holy Spirit, and it may piece some more things together for you. So take a look at that if you've got some time this week, and we will come back next week and break into chapter 8, which is the opening of the seventh seal. And we'll see that the opening of the seventh seal leads into the trumpet judgments, another series of judgments that we'll take a look at. So as we wrap up this study this morning, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. 